Well, hello, and welcome to our live podcast event. This is our joint collaboration between two podcasts that, if you're not listening to, you should definitely be listening to, the Brain Box podcast put on by the Oklahoma Humanities Council, and uh, our podcast for the Oklahoma Historical Society, a very okay podcast, uh, which is our clever name that I didn't come up with. But uh, we're so glad to have you all here, excited to talk about a topic tonight that I think is going to be really interesting. We have a great lineup of guests to weigh in on the conversation. And October is uh, October is Arts and Humanities Month in Oklahoma. And so this is why we're doing this as well. We also want to mention that on October the 16th from 9 a.m. in the morning until 2 p.m. here at the Oklahoma History Center, we're going to be having our Folk Life Festival where we'll be highlighting many of the cultures we're talking about here tonight and many more that we we won't even have a chance to mention. It's going to be a very, very fun day, so we'll encourage all of you to come out for that. And uh, today on the panel with us, we have Dr. Bob Blackburn, who was my predecessor at the Oklahoma Historical Society. We have Brooke Haney. Welcome, Brooke. We have Sunu Kodamthara. And I've been working on that one, I promise. <laughs> and Javier Hernandez. And yes, thank you. We're, we are ready to have a good conversation about what it is to grow up in Oklahoma if you weren't, uh, if you are, uh, was of a different culture, and uh, what it's like in your particular culture. And we're going to talk about, uh, in general, just uh, what it's like, uh, the cultural melting pot that we have here in Oklahoma. So first, I want to turn it over to Dr. Blackburn. And Dr. Blackburn, can you maybe set the stage for us? What are some of the cultures that have impacted our state? How have those cultures, uh, how have those cultures been important into making us who we are? Well, right. Well, you know, over time, Trey, historians have grappled with the the question of what binds Oklahoma history together. What is the real theme? that permeates everything in Oklahoma history. E.E. E. Dale, the great historian at OU, said it was a frontier experience, the cowboys and the people on the frontier and learning and the lessons learned from the frontier. Angie DeBeau thought it was American Indian history that was something that could bind us together. Errol Gibson, who was a friend of mine, and I published an article by him on this subject, he said it was mobility, the fact that Oklahoma history has been settled with such mobility since its very beginning def- helps define us. Danny Goble great historian, said it was the southern roots of Oklahoma. Well, what I've observed after almost 50 years of studying and writing about Oklahoma history is that it is the fact that Oklahoma is a land of immigrants. That's the term I use. I have entire speeches about Oklahoma, the land of immigrants. And it's about people coming from all across the world coming here, and it's unique. It's what separates us from the stories of Texas and Kansas and New Mexico and Arkansas in much of the rest of the country, we were the melting pot of the melting pot. And people came here for different reasons at different times from different places and settled in different places. And then this patchwork quilt of settlement kind of established the character of Oklahoma. For me and you who worked with the legislative branch of government, it is so unlike working with a, a, a representative from the Cherokee outlet from the old Choctaw Nation. If we are dealing with a community on creating a new partnership to get things done, on collecting, preserving, and sharing history, it's different when you're working with someone in Miami than someone in, in Tillman County. 
It is a patchwork quilt of settlement. You see it in politics. You see it in the lack of an identity. There's no thread, despite all of the millions that have been spent on branding this state and trying to find a brand. It can't be done because it's too diverse. But on the other side of that is that that is our strength, that diversity, the different cultures that have been brought here and the cultural baggage of the people. The 39 tribes, all but the Caddoan speakers really, have come here forced by the federal government to come to Oklahoma, bringing their cultural baggage, whether it is Seminole or Choctaw or Cherokee. Each is, is so different from one of the others, but that created this patchwork quilt in Indian country. Then you start with the different parts of Oklahoma history and people coming here uh, for the cattle frontier coming here for the oil frontier from the mid-Atlantic and then the Lebanese who were fleeing the Ottoman Empire see an opportunity because of oil. The Jewish people fleeing Eastern Europe see an opportunity with the oil industry and coming and, and settling down. And then the wheat frontier with mechanization and, and uh, greater production. Here come the, the, the Germans from Russia and the Mennonites and those communities and then you start adding the impact of World War II with people coming here for jobs, to work at Tinker Air Force Base, the Douglas Bomber plant in Tulsa. Then you throw in war and disruption around the world with the Vietnamese coming here after the fall of Saigon. And then each of these different reasons and different people coming here and becoming part of this mix of Latinos and African Americans and Indians and German ancestry and Scots-Irish ancestry and from England. It's created something that is, to me, very vital. And out of that comes the energy of who we are and trying to figure out how to get people to work together in our own networks or to believe in the mission of what we're really out there working on, creating the music or teaching history are working in the, in the business community. We're all trying to do the same things, get things accomplished, build networks, get investors, find customers. Trying to understand this, I think forces Oklahomans to be a little more creative, a little more persistent. And times are tough out here on the high plains and hanging on. And Jerry and I were just talking a little bit ago, you know, in the oil patch, you've got to believe that tomorrow's better than today. It's like a wheat farmer. It's always going to be better tomorrow. You know, we got to hang on today. That's Just give Oklahoma. me one more boom, and I promise not to mess it up, right? <laughs> That's right. That's a perfect. But this land of immigrants creates this diversity that we should be celebrating. And this is maybe too political. We shouldn't be building walls. We should be opening our arms and saying, this is the strength of Oklahoma, this diversity coming from around the globe and adding to this mixture that is uniquely Oklahoman. For historians, it's a great thing to study and try to understand. Uh, for people trying to make a living out in the world, it's it's great challenge. So anyway, that diversity is represented on this stage today. Trey, thanks for bringing us all together. Well, I thank everyone for being here. And before, before we move off this topic a little bit, I, I wonder, Bob, would you mind talking about the ways that Oklahoma has done cultural integration well, and maybe some ways that we've been done poorly or fallen short uh, through history uh, before we move on. Well, of course, the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla there is, is the way we've treated African-Americans in our history. Uh, that's disgraceful, and we're still paying the prices. We are still struggling. Race, 
racism is still a part of Oklahoma culture. And trying to overcome that, I think, is, is a challenge for a lifetime. And so we're dealing with, with decades and more than a century of the impact of racism there. But with American Indians, the exploitation, if you read about what happened to those orphans in the 19-teens and 20s, I'm just finishing a project on the Cheyenne Arapaho. Of all the Cheyenne Arapaho who took allotments in, in 1892, something like 10% of them still had the land 30 years later. And the exploitation was an industry. As you would exploit a natural resource, whether it was coal or wind or whatever, that, to those Oklahomans at the time, it was, a, it was a resource to exploit. And we did not do a very good job, but I think there have always been people willing to stand up and say we can do better. In the African-American community, one of my heroes, heroes of course, Clara Looper, uh, uh, and people like uh, Adeloa Scipio Fisher, you know, these people have stood up and said, we cannot do this any longer. Uh, there are people in the Indian community, Kelly Haney, uh, your father, uh, stood up and say, we American Indians have a voice and we are going to be heard. And he, his entire career, whether as a preacher or an artist or a politician or a businessman, he has been heard. And I think we in Oklahoma have seen these examples of people breaking through that resistance and still accomplishing some great things in Oklahoma. Uh, and so uh, it, it's, a, it's a project still underway. We all has to, have to be aware that we've got to be sympathetic with all people, no matter what their religion, what their belief, the pigment of their skin, uh, the language they were born with, their religious orientation, that there's still something we all can learn from and it adds to this mixture that makes Oklahoma a great place to live. Yeah, and, and some of the latest news you, you, happening just as we speak, we've got a 1,000 Afghan refugees coming to our state, and many people of both political stripes have, have welcomed and encouraged that. And so that's encouraging news for us going forward. Sunu, I want to turn the conversation to you, and I wonder, you're a, you're a college professor now at uh, Southwestern Oklahoma State University, correct? That's right. And um, can you tell us a little bit about your your formative years, your growing up experience in Oklahoma. So I moved here with my family when I was six years old from Denver. So my sister and I were born in Denver, but my parents are from Kerala, India. My dad came here when he was the ripe old age of 22 uh, and came here on his own uh, completely by himself. He is the third of seven boys. God bless my grandmother. And, uh, and then a few years later, um, my mom came by herself, and the two of them got married without either of their parents, none of their siblings. So the two of them uh, married in Denver um, and started their family. And, you know, it was um, there that uh, for a while they, you know, did fine, but um, Oklahoma presented a better economic opportunity for them uh, because my mom's a nurse. She was a registered nurse, which is how she came to the United States in the first place. Uh, for a lot of South Asian uh, women, uh, a lot of South Asian people in general, that's how they came to the United States because the United States was looking for nurses. Um, and so she was a trained nurse, and so that's how she came here. And 
Um, Oklahoma had um, a better way of living economically, and then so they decided, okay, let's move to uh, Oklahoma, and she got a job with uh, the VA hospital, and she still works there. Um, so good luck to all of you patients who have ever dealt with Mother Elsie. Um, she's one of those Indian nurses that you do not want to mess with. Um, and I apologize to all of you, I'm so sorry. But um, I will say she, uh, both the, the two of them, um, one of the things that they were not expecting, and, and the same for me and my sister, what we weren't expecting was the Indian community that we found here uh, from Kerala. Um, it was unexpected and welcomed because my sister and I did not know our parents' native language um, as we were growing up in Denver because there wasn't a large um, Indian community there. And so when we came here, um, we started to meet more people from Kerala. We started to go to church with them. We started spending our evenings with them. But what also happened was I started to see two very different worlds. So I would go to school and see only uh, white faces. So all of my teachers were white and all of my classmates were white. And then I would go home and in the evenings we would only be with brown people. And on the weekends it was only brown people. And that was very confusing for me because in Denver, I've got brown people everywhere, I've got some black people here, and I've got some white people here, and it was a mix. And then on top of that, there were mountains, and there's greenery, and here the dirt was red, there are no mountains, and my six-year-old self was confused. I'm like, where are the mountains? Why are things red in the ground? And everything's flat? I don't understand. Um, so there was a little bit of an identity confusion for me because I didn't know exactly where I fit in, to be honest. Um, so it was a little bit of a, of a culture clash. I, I, when I went to school, for example, you know, I'm in the first grade and I didn't quite fit in with my classmates, I realized. Um, and I struggled to make friends um, because they didn't know what to do with my name. My name was so different from theirs. Uh, Sunu Kodamthara doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. I'm not sure how many of you quickly snapped to that, but um, they were really confused with what, and you know, if everybody's six, you know, it doesn't, it's fine. Um, so they were just sort of adjusting to me and it took a little time and and so I suddenly realized, wow, I'm really different here and I don't know what to do with that. And then on top of that, even in the evenings and on the weekends when I'm with other people who look like me, I didn't quite fit in with them either because the way I spoke didn't sound like the way they spoke. They could speak a language that I couldn't. And they could understand things that I couldn't. And so I realized I really stood out in a way that didn't make sense, right? And I started to ask the question, why? Why did we move here? This makes no sense to me. Money makes no sense to me anyway. So 
economics wasn't going to explain that to me. And it, it, I guess the conclusion I came to was my parents were trying to teach me how to be Indian, and that really wasn't it. But in my mind, that was the answer, that the why was I needed to learn how to be an Indian. Um, and it, for me, that was um, something that sort of shaped my understanding of who I was supposed to be or how I was supposed to fit in. And that's something that I think for a lot of us who are sort of struggling with our cultural identity, um, try to understand why are we or how did we end up here? Um, and what do we contribute to this larger narrative? How can we help shape this Oklahoma story uh, and this American identity, right? How can we contribute to it? What can we add to it? Um, and so, you know, in trying to help this conversation forward, you know, I think that's where I think um, Javier can, can really jump in because uh, Javier, you were born in Mexico City, um, which is uh, extremely different from Denver and definitely not Kerala, India. But you also, you, you have to have a, a why for, for why you ended up here or, or how you ended up here. What's your, your, what's your part of the story? Yeah, thank you, Suni. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, I think um, I learned this from my wife and uh, through reading, obviously, she, she learned the word Nepantla. Um, kind of being in the in-between, not from here and not from there, right? And so when my, when my mother first arrived here, she was leaving an abusive relationship, and that was one part. The other part, I already had uncles living in Texas. And we arrived in Texas, and soon after arriving in Texas, it was like Oklahoma is where there's more opportunity. And... Since I was one and a half year old, I've been living in Oklahoma. And so when we talk about opportunity in Oklahoma and, and the opportunities that it presents, it was that for our family from a very young age for myself. And I like the statement you made, like economics didn't make sense to us at that time, right? And, and I go back to thinking even before pre-K and the things that my parents were doing to, to keep us afloat and we were recycling pallets. And that was our evening slash weekend job. We would take routes all throughout the city, um, picking up pallets, recycling pallets, and making sales on the weekends to, you know, to keep, keep food on the table, pay the bills, and, and all of that good stuff. And it just so happened that I had three uncles who created um, pallet businesses and were super successful for, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years have continued to be successful in that. And so... You know, coming from being born in Mexico City and being undocumented in Oklahoma, I never had the opportunity to return to Mexico. And so for the first time in December of last year, I was able to travel to Mexico after receiving my green card. And I mean, that was all of op just opportunity that opened up and, you know, always kind of being ready for that opportunity. But I went to, to a grade school here in Oklahoma City. You know, everything, all, everything Oklahoma City is home. It's, it's where I've, I've been raised. And, and I, I kind of want to go back to that idea of not from here, not from there. But 
graduating or graduating elementary school, <laughs> um, going from elementary school into middle school, I went from Rockwood Elementary where, yeah, I think we were, uh, if you want to say, a melting pot where we had um, students from all over. But then I went to Dove Science Academy for sixth grade, and that was a culture shock in itself, um, located on Northwest 23rd in Classen. I went into a school with, I want to say, 80, 90 percent um, Turkish teachers. And so I went from, you know, just English and Spanish home and school to then being offered a Turkish class. Um, being invited into a Turkish household, um, eating their food. Um, and not only that, but the Asian community also at, at Dove Science Academy was huge. Um, and so I went from Rockwood Elementary, where I knew everyone, to Dove Science Academy, where I knew no one. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm grateful, right, because I think everyone knows Oklahomans are friendly, <laughs> right? <laughs> everyone knows Oklahomans are friendly. Um, and so going into a school like that, um, it, it forced me to build new community. Um, and I think that's something that my family followed here, obviously, right? Following their family, but following community that was built within our, our family. Um, because the pallet business, you meet so many people and recycling, and, and you don't just recycle pallets. You know, everyone recycles aluminum cans and copper and things like that. Um, but pallets was our go-to. Um, and so, you know, getting, in, getting into Dove Science Academy, going through that program, being in a charter school, having the opportunity to, say, get college ready um, was something that I know my parents obviously wanted me to focus on, and it was always education first, everything else will take care of itself. Um, but then when I found out I was undocumented at the age of 14, I started thinking to myself, well, where am I from? What do I do? Where do I belong? Am I going to get a driver's license? Will I be able to work? And at 14, you don't know what undocumented means. And so it took me a really long time to really, you know, understand that. And, and then you start talking about applying for OLAP. And then the question comes up, are you a U.S. citizen? Uh, no. Um, are you a resident? I don't know. <laughs> you know, at that age. Um, but then also having that conversation with my parents and saying, hey, you know, what's going on here? Why don't I have a driver's license? What can I do? And like them and myself, we just didn't know where to go, what to do. And, and, and we talked about this a bit um, in our preparation for this event. But applying for colleges was, was a big deal for me, obviously, you know, always putting an education first and I was a huge soccer player, and part of that was my mom always, stop playing soccer, you know, but that was a community for myself and for my family as well, but she said, stop playing soccer, take care of your body, and I never stopped playing soccer, and well, then my thought was to be an architectural engineer, and I said, well, OSU, okay, OSU Stillwater is the best place to do that. Um, I applied for OLAP, got OLAP, Oklahoma's Promise, uh, had a full right scholarship to Oklahoma State University, and just before, um, like a, a couple, a month before school started, I received a call from their advisor um, after I explained everything. And she said, you know, all these scholarships that we have uh, granted you, we, you can't accept because of my undocumented status. Wow. And so that was a, uh, that was, I think, something that Oklahoma didn't know how to handle at that moment, right? And I think now... Um, 
uh, higher education uh, facilities are doing a lot better in helping the undocumented folks um, living in Oklahoma. But at that time, it was so brand new that we were still trying to figure out what to do. And I kind of went into a dark place, thought to myself, I won't go to school anymore. And well, fortunately, soccer, not giving up on soccer, led to a different opportunity. And, and really, I mean, I know there's opportunity elsewhere, but Oklahoma has provided me all the opportunity that I need um, for now. <laughs> um, but fortunately, you know, I was able to attend uh, Mid-America Christian University on a full-ride scholarship on soccer and academics. Um, once I finished that, in, in 2012 is when DACA came through, through the Obama administration. And then I started thinking, I can actually work, I can actually... Um, drive legally and my parents can go to sleep without having to worry about what's going to happen to me if I get stopped by the police or anything like that. And then I started thinking about my future, obviously. I was a math major at that time and I thought, yeah, you know, I, I can teach some math or do something of that sort, do it, be a tutor, but that didn't play out and I started working with an attorney and translating and he's the one that mentored me through the law school process and said, go to law school, math majors are the most likely to succeed. I didn't believe it. I had to Google that. <laughs> uh, turns out it's true. Um, the way you solve your formulas and all that, um, you know, analytical thinking it plays a big role into the law, the interpretation of the law and writing. Um, and so now um, I've got my green card. Um, I'm happily married and I'm a three-year attorney. And that is all because of that opportunity that presented to my family back in 1993 when we first arrived to Oklahoma, you know, and so I'm grateful for that. Um, grateful for, you know, the opportunities that we've been presented here. But I do think that a big thing in my role as an immigration attorney is challenging these racist policies, right? That goes into fighting the um, 287G agreements that the Oklahoma County Jail has with ICE and disturbing that deportation pipeline to help keep our families close and nearby and at home, you know. Um, and so that's a daily battle for me and, and continuing, continuing to provide opportunity for others that, have, that come after us. So that is Oklahoma for me. Well, that's a fascinating story, and thanks so much for sharing about that. And, you know, it's someone like me. Thank you. You know, I certainly can't imagine the trials and the hardships that you had to go through to get to where you are today. So it's just such a privilege to hear that story. And I want to turn to, to Brooke now. And, um, you know, Brooke, you knowing who your parents are, uh, you, you were raised here in Oklahoma, born here in Oklahoma? Born in Shawnee, Oklahoma at Mission Hill Hospital, a native hospital. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I grew up about uh, 20 minutes away from there. So tell us a little bit, you, you obviously didn't come from anywhere else, but you also have a very distinct culture that you were raised in. Tell us what it was like for you to grow up here. Well, I mean, we did come from, you know, southeast America, right? <laughs> United States, um, but yeah. So our culture, there we have a lot of traditions. Um, family is not just the family that you're born into. Um, that's a big part of our culture and how I grew up and how my parents um, taught us. Um, my parents were also very busy, so we weren't really raised as traditionally as a lot of people. Um, 
in my tribe or in a bunch of our, you know, our cultures, um, all of the native tribes in Oklahoma specifically. But um, it's, it's definitely different. I mean, I do relate to the, I'm not, I'm not native enough, I'm not white enough. Um, to fit in in any either category. Um, it's something that I felt and I struggled with uh, growing up quite a bit, and even uh, probably, you know, into my late teen years until I graduated high school. I mean, I graduated high school the day I turned 17 years old and got out of there, <laughs> you know? I just, I really didn't feel like I fit in. Um, even starting from when I was in first grade, uh, going to elementary and Seminole, um, I overheard a teacher tell another teacher that my skin was so dark that I looked dirty. And, you know, and this isn't a place, this isn't Seminole, Oklahoma, where there are a lot of Native Americans. There are, a, I mean, there's, you know, all kinds of people. But it's things like that that really impact you mm -hmm. and you take that through life um and it you know it's something that made me feel ashamed of who I was or what I looked like and it wasn't until much later that I through my parents guidance and the things that they have done for not just the Native Americans in in Oklahoma but for the people of Oklahoma and um showing me that everyone is you know, has beauty. Every culture is significant and special. Um, you know, it, it took a long time to get to that point. And um, once I did, it's like, it's just, it was just like a complete rebirth. Um, you know, I felt so much freer. I didn't feel that shame. I didn't feel um, timid and shy. I didn't feel like you know, I couldn't voice my opinion because it didn't matter or didn't matter as much, you know, as the person next to me. Um, that's just some, that's something that really um, I felt growing up here in Oklahoma. And, you know, it's not the first racist thing I've heard and it's, it hasn't been the last, you know, unfortunately. But I do feel like things, although it will be a problem for many years to come, um, I do feel like... It, it's gotten so much better since I was a kid, you know, in the 80s, in the 90s. Um, even my son, you know, I mean, he's, he's as dark as I am, you know. And he doesn't, it's, it's amazing. He doesn't think about it, you know. He knows a lot about his culture. Um, he, that's, that's part of who he is. But it's not something that he feels makes him so different that he has to, you know, be ashamed or, you know, not say what he wants to say, you know? And um, I really, I really appreciate that um, now. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I really think it's because of my parents. And, I mean, my mom, she's been um, a tribal lawyer for, I mean, since, you know, the 70s. And my dad was a representative, a senator, he's had a TV show, 
He painted signs. He was the president of J.C. Penney at one point. Like, he's done so many things. I mean, it's wild. If you talk to this man, there's nothing he hasn't done. He did the sculpture on top of the Capitol building. Um, he got a lot of funding to make this place happen, the place we're in right now. Um, the new cultural center um, that just opened. Um, you know, and that's, it's just through hard work and determination and knowing that you aren't any different. You know, and I feel like that's been something really amazing that he's not only shown me and my son, but a lot of other people. I mean, I have people come up to me all the time telling me how much my, both of my parents have influenced them into going into law or, you know, becoming an artist or getting into politics or, you know, no matter what it is. And it's, it's really amazing. And it's something I, I just really appreciate about the way that they, you know raised all of us pretty much, you know, through the public eye. You mentioned your son. It, do you consciously try to raise him as cognizant of his native heritage and, and, you know, to help him understand where he comes from? Or does he get it just by seeing you and your father and the people he's around? I think it's both. I mean, I definitely make a point um, to talk to him about things, um, you know, to talk to him about our culture sing him the songs. Um, we've been watching Reservation Dogs together, which my friend Sterling Harjo, um, you know, co he put, you know, started, started that whole thing. Um, the music, my grandfather was a flute player. Uh, most of, lots of my family are different types of artists, um, basket makers, um, jewelry makers, all kinds of really amazing, beautiful kinds of work and um so he has grown up seeing it but i also make a point to tell him the stories and you know show him where he comes from i think it's really important for him to know yeah absolutely i i have a question for sunu and javier and i think you alluded to it a little bit but how much did your parents attempt to uh, emphasize your culture as you were growing up your your heritage where you came from and then how much did they also want you to be American, you know, to, to integrate into the, the culture that we have, uh, the, the prevailing culture? So my parents, um, and I've talked to my parents in recent years about this because one of the issues that I've held in bitterness about uh, with them about is... Um, I feel like I could be more fluent in our native language than I am now. Um, and I've asked them, why didn't we speak, or why didn't you teach us how to speak this native language when we were in Denver? Why did you wait until, you know, we moved here? And one of the things that my dad said was, well, we just thought that since you guys are, were going to school and, you know, uh, and you were being raised around uh, predominantly uh, a, an American community, we just thought it would be best if we only spoke English around you. And so that was, that was what we did. That was the approach we took. And then suddenly we moved to Oklahoma. There's a larger Indian community. And it wasn't like they spoke more Malayalam at home. That was our native language. Sorry if I threw you off there. Um, she, she was speaking gibberish. No. Um, uh, we, uh, but it was just that 
by being around the community more, um, we picked it up by hearing it. That's what happened. We just heard it more and more. And because we were young, that's how, that's how we learned it. We would hear it in songs. We would hear it in conversation. We would hear it in church services. And so um, that's how we learned it. And interestingly enough, my grandmother um, said to my father, or said to my, both of my parents once, um, this was when we were living in Denver, um, she said to them, I would like to be able to speak to my grandchildren. And I, I guess they, uh, I guess they didn't realize, you know, how um, how impactful not teaching us uh, their native language would be until she had said that. And then once we moved to Oklahoma and started learning the language and started having conversations with both sets of grandparents, they realized, oh they can now have their own conversations and develop their own relationship and have that communication. So it wasn't like they were intentional in teaching us, but it just sort of happened accidentally, thank thankfully. But, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the language is a big part for my, my family. And really, I think in the, I'm going to say in the Mexican culture, is that family and food, those are the two the two big ones and my mom always connected through the food and I think my aunts would agree that my mom is the best cook in the family. <laughs> I'll ask them later. Um, but I think that that was the, the main source of culture that I received from my family is the food and the family gatherings. Every holiday we spent together as a family and I think that was the the two things that really connected us. I think that part of the maybe not connecting so much with like Dia de los Muertos or Los Reyes Magos, which is our Christmas um, and our Halloween, is maybe part of this idea of not being able to celebrate in Mexico. And so I think it was hard for them to bring themselves to celebrate that here when they couldn't celebrate it in their home country. And I, I like the way you said it. I hold it in bitterness against them, right? Um, because when I was able to visit Mexico for the first time in 27 years, in, back in December, after coming back from that trip, I felt so much closer and tied to my culture than ever in my life. And now I like get goosebumps talking about Mexico. I almost cry when I hear the anthem and celebrating Dia de los Muertos. And I think that comes with me also growing as a person and being able to experience that, knowing in, my, in the back of my head that I don't know when my parents will get to visit Mexico again. And so me being able to bring that sense of culture and that Mexican patriotism um, is is huge now, and I think it's going to be huge for like my niece and in the future if I have kids um, to be able to push that on them and not just let them be a part of the culture that they're surrounded by and say this is where you come from. Trey, just let me add a little story here about the Vietnamese community. In the 1990s, we had a young intern who was Vietnamese and she was bilingual and she had learned the language in the home in the Vietnamese community here in Oklahoma City. 
and she did an internship with us. So we assigned her a project of going out to the Vietnamese elders who had come here after the fall of Saigon, those who spoke only Vietnamese, and interviewing them. And even though the interviews were in Vietnamese and we never were able to get them translated, we captured those stories. And then fast forward 25 years, we wanted to do an exhibit on the war in Vietnam. We had those interviews. We had their experiences firsthand. We were able to pull those out of our collections, use them to tell a story about an, another, about their generations. And one thing we learned is that many of those young people also were not fluent in the language. And they said, why, I don't know why my parents didn't teach me. Now when I go back to Vietnam, I can't talk to my aunts and uncles and cousins. And so that second generation, I think, typically is pushed to, to using English more often. And, and then uh, I know your father still speaks Seminole. I've yeah. heard him speak yeah, very he fluently. And I'd be curious to see if he passed that on to you. And, of course, he's not second generation. And I knew your grandfather as well. Yeah. We had him at the old <laughs> historical society playing the flute. But uh, Kelly... I know has shared his language and, and very proudly speaks that language. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, he still speaks at home, not as often anymore, but um, he did growing up. And then my grandmother lived with us for a while, and she did too. So we learned a lot from her. Um, my son, he knows when he's in trouble. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, everybody knows when they're in trouble oh, in their yeah. native language. Everybody, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, he didn't. We picked things up mm-hmm. from being in around the culture. Um, nobody's really sat down with us and tried to, you know, show us the language. But you know, English, I mean, Creek was my dad's first language, so English was his second language, and I think it is part of that in that, you know, just moving past that and just going full, you know, American, whatever you think that is at the time. Um, I don't know why people make the choices that they do, but it does seem like um, a lot of people do uh, do that. Um, I, I, You know, I wish I knew more um, of my language, I know all the bad words, you know. <laughs> I know a lot of the songs. I know a lot of the, the hymns and things like that. Um, my siblings and I, I'm one of seven, and uh, we know enough to get on each other's nerves or, you know, things like that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I would like to explore more, especially as my son gets older. He, I mean, I, I speak to him what little I know, um, and my dad does too. Um, so it's definitely something that I hope he keeps up. I know my nephew, Matthew, he's really taken it upon himself to specifically go out and, and learn the language, um, and he's been doing just a wonderful job. Um, and he is, he's in S- at Seminole State College now, but it's something I really hope that he keeps up because he's he's getting really great at it, and it makes me really proud to see the younger generations um, really stepping up and wanting wanting to learn more about where they come from, about their culture. So especially with something like our language, which, if, you know, native languages are dying so fast and there are not that many people, um, you know, that still speak fluently. So I think it's really important. Trey, one last comment for me. Um, in, in Indian country, there's a real awareness that 
the language is so important to a culture, and it's the same with you too. Your culture, the way you express yourself, the way you talk about emotions and family and, and the world around you, a lot of it is it comes back to language. Well, my third and last book that I did was A History of the Cherokee Nation, and I brought it up to the present date. And under Bill John Baker, when he was principal chief, they put an emphasis on immersion schools. So in the Cherokee Nation today, if a person wants their child to learn the language and the elders are gone and they don't, they're not capable of doing it, a child can enroll in one of these immersion schools from, from a childhood, and then the minute they step into that school, it's Cherokee only. And it's reviving the language, which is reviving more of this sense of this worldview that's uniquely Cherokee that is the spiritual part of being Cherokee, of relating to the world around us. And I think all of us, uh, the more languages we know, the more we understand about these different cultures, the richer our lives are. Yeah, absolutely. And I, one of the things that, uh, before we turn it over to questions, I'd be interested to know, just, just very briefly, what can we do better? What can we do better as a society to, to fully embrace uh, the differences and the, and the richness that makes each of us unique and integrate that into our culture? Well, I'm going to go back to something to, to Brooke's experience with her teacher for a second because I, 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 cause I had similar experiences. I, I had um, a teacher who, I had teachers who blatantly made fun of my name in front of my class, classmates, but I also had teachers who were, who were my heroes who just, I mean, I, I don't know where I would be without them. And one of them was my first grade teacher who, um, who, who realized that I was being sort of uh, marginalized a little bit because I was the only kid who was, I showed up in February, so I was already, you know, sticking out anyway, and pl- like everything was different about me. I'm the oddball with the curly hair and the brown face and the weird name, and, um, and so she went out of her way to make sure that the other kids understood that I was smart and capable and all of this stuff, but she also made sure that I understood it too. And that stayed with me. I mean, I'm gonna be 42 next Friday and that feeling still stays with me. And I was six. (laughs) So um, I've gotta say, to have advocates like that is so important because those little moments are actually really big moments. Those are transformative moments. So if we can, you know, as a a community, I hate saying society because it, it seems like such a big word. If we can just see ourselves as a community of people, uh, and, to look out for each other like that and see each other as just, you know, fellow human beings rather than you're a different people and you're a different people and you're a different people. If I can just see Javier as you're a fellow human being and I'm just going to have your back and I don't like how you're being marginalized, so I'm going to just stick right by you 
and, you know, and I'm just going to cover you and make sure you're okay. If I can see him like that, I mean, that's what makes all the difference. That's what happened on that day uh, when my teacher covered me. And that made all the difference for me. And I feel like that's really what would make us better together. That's my solution. So get on that, everybody. (laughs) Let's all make that our homework assignment, right? Javier, what do you you say? Yeah, I think um, in the immigrant community, we talk a lot about sharing our stories. And obviously sharing means people have to listen. And so I think that as we continue to tell our stories and continue to share our stories, is the only thing that we can ask of others is that they listen and that they attempt to understand where we're coming from, what we've experienced. Because a lot of people will never understand what we've gone through. But you can try. And so I think that is one of the biggest things that that I think we can do um, is continue to try to listen and people like us continue to share our stories. How about you, Brooke? You know, I think people need to be nice (laughs) and kind and, you know, I mean, that along with, you know, what what everybody here has been saying today, um, listening, sharing your stories. Um, I really think it just comes down to remembering that you're a part of humanity and we're all on the same circle, as my dad always says. Um, And nobody is more important than the other. That is the other thing he says quite frequently. And um, it's true, you know. I think the more we think about each other as just friends, you know, the the better we'll all be. Well put, well said, thank you. Okay, let's have some questions. Uh, If any of you have any questions, I can bring you a microphone here. Anybody have a question? As I listen to the three of you, uh, and then, I don't know, this is probably for Dr. Bob, but we have spent generations with immigrants trying to wipe out everything so they can be like us. Is there a formulation on how many generations that we can become special, like you're talking about, that we can diversify and still respect that? I'd like to see. I don't think there's an answer. But. You know, one thing I've noticed at the Historical Society, and this goes back to my own education, you know, finished the PhD, was going to write books and do history. When I got to the Historical Society, I realized how important family research was to so many people and quickly embraced the genealogical community and some of our best allies. And 95% of the research done here is on families. I think that's the place where we can make a difference is we study our own families. And me understanding my grandmother who helped raise me and my I'm third generation Irish American, understanding that line, understanding the Cherokee line, understanding the German. I, I think then that's helped me understand. And I think that uh, we've got to preserve these stories. This is a plug for the Historical Society. All of these stories we've been hearing today should be recorded in oral histories and deposited here. So their children and grandchildren can reach back and say, oh, that's the way grandma felt or granddad felt. 
Uh, and I think family research uh, will always be an emphasis here. And that's a place that we really need to emphasize that we all can learn more about ourselves and our place in the world. Any other thoughts on that particular question? Is There is no solution. There is no answer. Is that, is that acceptable? <laughs> um, no, I, I think... I think that's a, a really interesting question to ask because you're right. I, you know, I think for my parent, my parents um, were under the impression that once you come here, um, especially if you're raising children here, the responsibility is they need to adopt everything that is American so that they can be well adjusted, whatever that means, and. Um, that's why they never really put the emphasis on learning the language and, and anything like that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think in a lot of ways they, they do um, regret some of those decisions, but I think, you know, if you look at uh, people in my generation who are now raising children of their own, um, one of the things that makes me really happy and proud uh, to see is that they are making sure that their children um, are learning the language as young as possible, that they are learning more about, you know, South Asian history and that culture and those traditions and trying to embrace being from Kerala, embrace, you know, South Asian food um, and, um you know, knowing and understanding that um, Kerala food is better than North Indian food. I said it and write it down. Um, all of those, you know, you know, being, um, being proud of who they are as uh, Indian people and as Americans, those are two identities that are both excellent. And that is, I mean, that's a good thing. That is, and that's all they need to know. Yeah, I want to tag on to you know, to what Bob said. There, there's a scene in the television show Master of None, and the main characters in that show his his parents immigrated from India, and he was raised, you know, as an American, and similar to stories that we've heard here today. And he decides one day he's going to just sit down and talk to his father. Like he never just sat down and asked his father's story. And his father starts going through the whole story about how he came over from India. He, you know, he, he had a wife who they had just been married. They didn't have hardly any money. And he starts to recognize just all the hardships that his parents went through to immigrate over and all the sacrifices they made. And he gets a whole new appreciation for his parents and his culture. And I would say that a great thing to do along those lines is Start telling stories. Start asking parents, you know, hey, can you tell and record it? Like Bob said, let's record these stories and let's get them on the record so that we can have those to pass those down so that they don't get lost along the way. So great question. Any other questions? Well, Trey beat me to it a little bit in that he, he always seems to like to bring pop culture to this. And in doing that, I, Brooke, I have a question. Um, you talked about reservation dogs. I would, I would be interested how your dad, you, and your son feel about the show. And what do you think 
of it's is it a groundbreaking show portraying native people or just tell me tell me what you think about reservation dogs i think that it is absolutely groundbreaking um all three of us love it uh in different ways too um for me it definitely reminds me <laughs> I'm a little ashamed to say this but it reminds me of my brothers and my cousins and i <laughs> Just living in a tiny town and not having anything to do and just walking around, you know, when there were no cell phones or, you know, internet. <laughs> um, just kind of making our own fun <laughs> and not doing anything too illegal. But um, <laughs> and <laughs> no, but um, there was no chip truck stolen. There were no. Okay. Well, okay. Never mind. <laughs> You're protected by statute of limitations exactly. now, so you can't be prosecuted. It wasn't me, okay? I'm, I'm, I will tell you that. <laughs> but, um, you know, for me, it just, it reminds me of a time, it was definitely um, my cousins and my siblings, we, I mean, we were like brothers and sisters, all of us, you know, and um, it just reminds me of just being a kid and having fun and having all of those... Um, you know, the folklore of the Native community uh, kind of comes to life, and the reality of, you know, being at the IHS trying to get a doctor's appointment, <laughs> um, you know, lots of things like that, uh, you know, random, you know, elders telling you to do something and you do it because I, they're they're apparently your grandfather or, you know, your grandma, even though they're really not, you know, you just, you have a different respect for elders in our culture. Um, I think it's just very well written. I think it's great. The characters remind me of home so much. Um, I just really appreciate it. My dad in particular loves, um, he really loved the last episode with the tornado. Don't tell me what happens. <laughs> I've only watched the first two episodes, so please oh. don't. Well, I won't give it away. <laughs> You're like, shh. Spoiler alert. Yeah, but there's a there's a there's a there's a bit with like an accident, and it's when you get to that. Think about my dad because this is it's definitely what he tells me every time a storm comes. This is what he does. So, on that note, I encourage all of you to watch it so you can watch the very last episode. <laughs> um, I'm really happy for everyone involved. Um, I went to film school with most of the people <laughs> that made this. So I'm, I'm very proud of everything that they've done. Yeah, it's, it's really neat. I think um, also going back to the question of, you know, what can we do to, um, to change things uh, as far as to have more appreciation and uh, for other cultures and, um, and everything. I, I do think that the arts plays in a lot with it. I think media plays in a lot with it. Um, I'm a musician. I've been playing music since I was eight, I got my first guitar. Um, I think there's there's just so much art out there, whether it's in, you know, TV. Hopefully there will be more representation for all different kinds of people. You know, I certainly am appreciative of, of what Sterling has done for, for my culture. So I think things like that are really important as well. One thing that gives me hope is that, you know, when I was growing up, if you turned on the TV, you saw Leave it to Beaver and and Father Knows Best, and all white folks, and all in the suburbs, and all very comfortable. Well, today you turn on the TV, you see the diversity. 
you see, you know, breaking down those stereotypes in, 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 the, in this TV show, and I love it for that reason. It's breaking down the stereotypes that most people think. But the diversity you see, it's Asian, Southeast Asian, Latino, it's, it's just everywhere. And if you watch commercials, I'm, I, of course, maybe I'm just a, basically an optimist, but as a historian, I've seen the progress we've made, and I see we're still making it. And I think we're still going to continue to progress and get better and love each other more. It just I think that's the natural way of life. And I see it in popular culture as reflecting that right now. Brooke, may I ask what you were going to say? Your grandfather says something every time a storm is coming. Okay. Well, my dad. So Your dad. <laughs> if a storm's coming, uh, he just moved in with us not that long ago. But before... He would, I would call him to make sure, you know, because tornadoes would be outside looking for him. And, um, you know, my dad, he was like, I'm not going to go hide. He's like, I, I put an axe in the front yard. And that's, so in our culture, that's how you can make the storm turn away from you. You basically challenge it to a fight. So um, anyway, that's that's the part in the show. But it's, it's a really good part. <laughs> You'll see it. <laughs> so... And, and really, there's no more Oklahoma thing to do than challenge a tornado to a fight. So. Absolutely. That's accurate. That's accurate. And on that note, I want to thank all of our panelists here tonight. This has been such a wonderful evening. And thank you so much for sharing all of your stories. And I think we've all been enriched by hearing about your experiences growing up in Oklahoma. And uh, we just want to encourage you uh, to listen to our podcast, the Brain Box podcast. Where can people find that one? You can catch Brain Box anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So please, please subscribe to Brain Box because I'm one of the new co-hosts. Thanks, guys. And Dr. Blackburn and I are co-hosts of A Very Okay Podcast. This is our Oklahoma History Podcast, and uh, you can find that the same place you can find it, Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and all the other places you get podcasts as well. So we would love it if you listen to us and give us some feedback, and it's our pleasure to do this. So thank you all for coming out tonight, and we have had a wonderful time.